This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. you really can live out your Christian values, make a positive difference in your workplace, and truly benefit those who don't believe the same as you do. Today's guest is known for his fusion of faith and work. Gary Harpst is the CEO of Lead First, where he fosters agile organizations and develops powerful, business faith intersections for Christian executives in entrepreneurial businesses. Lead First, under Harp's guidance, provides a whole business, whole person health strategy for kingdom impact businesses. With four decades of experience, he founded three successful businesses, one of which merged and was sold to Microsoft. He has authored three impactful books, the latest of which is called Built to Beat Chaos, Gary makes the biblical case that we are all created to overcome chaos. As a veteran Christian CEO, Harp's leadership journey has encompassed business trials, growth, and chaos, and he knows how to bring order out of chaos. Rooted in family values, Gary finds joy with his wife, three children, and four grandchildren. Gary, welcome to the Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Thank you, Dr. Karen. I have been greatly waiting for this moment, so I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it as well. We are pilgrim travelers on a similar journey and path, and so I'm really delighted to have you on the show today and to speak to you about your journey. So, Gary, I'm going to jump in first, just asking you to Tell us a little bit about your entrepreneurial business journey. I'm very intrigued to hear about your software company that was called TLB. That's the one that was sold to Microsoft. Tell us about that company story. Oh, I'd love to. And I'm entering my fifth decade as a CEO, so I have to go back a little bit. But clear back when the IBM PC was being introduced, two fellows and I in a Bible study decided to form this high-tech business and dedicate it to the Lord. And that was clear back in 1980. We called it TLB to remind ourselves that it was the Lord's business. I love that. I love that name, first of all, and that you thought about, you know, the preeminence and prominence of God in all Mm -hmm. that you were doing. Now, you were in that company for a while. So tell us a little bit about how long you ran the company, what prompted you selling it, and and Mm -hmm. a little bit about those details. Yeah, those were those are what you call dog years. You know, a year in the PC revolution in that started in, in 1981, you had to grow 50% a year just to keep up. I mean, you were losing ground. And so for 20 years, I was the CEO of that company. We got to the point where we either needed to take the company public or become part of a larger organization. And th- that's what we decided to do in 2000. Right when the NASDAQ peaked in March of 2000, we sold the business. All right. So good deal. Sold the business. And you said in part of the merger, Microsoft even bought the company. Yeah, that was kind of interesting. We sold it to our largest competitor in the United States, Great Plains. And uh, Doug Burgum, who was uh, CEO of uh, Great Plains, had good relationships with Microsoft And I'd say within 30 days, they were in discussions of the combined entity. That was a real adventure to go from uh, 500 employees to 100,000. Oh, unbelievable. Absolutely. So now you have had other entrepreneurial businesses too. This is just one that we're talking about. And one of the things that you're facilitating with your clients is this whole notion of staying true to Christian values while running your businesses. So how did you stay true to your Christian values while running your businesses? Yeah, there's two kind of separate stories here. I'll just start with the first one. At at TLB, when we started that company, we were one person and, and two people, prayer partners. And we said, let's run this by biblical principles. But to be honest with you, 
you don't really know what that means until a business problem comes up. And then you're thinking, okay, what does it mean to run the business by biblical principles and you have an employee that is not performing well? So those are the kind of things we had to sort through over 20 years, and it was a great learning journey. Well, maybe share a story or two with us about how you did ultimately apply the biblical principles in a tough case, like maybe an underperforming employee or whatever else you choose to share. Yeah, I, I have one in mind. But at the time, we were probably several hundred employees, and there were probably there were three layers between me and the front lines, and I got this report that from one of our uh, my direct reports that said we were firing a certain employee, and I said, "Have we done?" treated him right. Have we done the right things here? And they said, yes. Um, and I read through some of the conversations that they had had with him and attempts to correct his behavior. What I noticed was a belligerence in the way he treated people. And so I said, well, I would like to meet with him before he goes. I'm, I'm not changing any decisions. I had this sense of responsibility that somebody leaving my company and being fired I wanted to really understand where their head was at and, and what was going on. Because I feel like that's a failure, both of us. We hired somebody and then offer them a job and then they can't be successful. So bottom line is I met with this individual. My first opening words were, do you trust me? And he said, uh, yes. Uh, he and I didn't have, not a, didn't have a relationship. And I proceeded to tell him how he was coming across to others. And I said that this is true because I hear the same story from five different people. And so this is the way it is. And he started to cry. And he said, no one has ever told me that. And I said, well, that's not true. People have told you that, but you haven't been able to receive it. But I think because he knew he was leaving the business, he knew I had no other ulterior motive than to speak truth to him he was able to hear that for the first time, how he was coming across. And his comment out the door was, he said, this is going to change the direction of my life. So that's an example of, well, is that honoring a biblical principle? I would say yes. I was trying to love him in the sense of doing what was right for him, uh, even though he was leaving the business. You were really caring about him at a level of the whole person. Yes. What your whole company is about now, because you did not have to give him feedback. You did not have to even talk to him. However, you cared enough to say, you know, what's going on here? How can I benefit this person as they're mm -hmm. leaving? What can we learn as a business, even in their departure? And I think of the whole biblical concept of speaking the truth in love. And because you approached it that way, he was able to hear for the first time. That's setting him up for a much better experience with his next employer. If he had continued doing the same thing, he'd probably just get fired again. That's right. I, I couldn't agree more. And I notice when other business leaders as Christians struggle, they'll have employees say, well, you would never fire me if you were a Christian and sort of throw that back in your face. But the truth is love sometimes means speaking the truth, like you said, in love and telling them you can't be what God created you to be in this organization. So we need to help you move on to something that's better. Oh, yeah. And we all know that a lot of times if someone is not a good fit for their current place, mm -hmm. they can be a great and ideal fit for somewhere else, or perhaps there are lessons they need to learn in the meantime, before they could possibly come back or go to another organization that has similar mm -hmm. kinds of characteristics. So, yeah, it's really a win-win when we can say, no, this is not a good fit. And yeah. perhaps we, we need to make another choice or decision. You know, Gary, I know that one of the things that's important to you also is benefiting not just the person in the company who is also a Christian, you and I share this in common. We both believe that you can be a person in the company who's not a Christian and derive great benefits from working for a Christian company or Christian leaders and bosses. Yet some people who are not Christians wonder, how does that work? And they may be mm -hmm. thinking this would be the last thing and the worst thing that could happen to me. So talk to us a little bit about that. What's the benefit to the non-Christian who's working for a Christian? 
I think that is a wonderful question. And in today's world, we're sometimes pushed to not express who we are and to mask it. And I have discovered that I can do business with anyone as long as I understand what's important to them and their values. So when you join a company and your choice is to join an organization where there's no evidence of what the person at the top believes or my boss believes versus joining one where it's clear what they believe, that's a step forward because I've got some idea of what I'm getting into. The second thing I would say in Christianity in particular, if somebody is serious about their Christianity, what does that mean that they're called to do? Well, first of all, it means they're called to tell the truth. Uh, who doesn't want to work for somebody that's not truthful? It means you're called to be fair and honest, and who does not want to work for that? And so if you start to look through what Christians are called to do, treat people right, then who wouldn't want to work for someone who says, my God is going to hold me accountable for treating you right? So that's that's the mindset. Yeah, that's wonderful. Treating people right. And like you say, most people want to be treated right, regardless of what their, you know, faith experience may be. So yeah. just to know you're going to be treated fairly and that it's an honest company and all of those things, that has value in and of itself. You know, Gary, you also believe that the workplace is a place of transformation. Tell us a little bit about that. What does that mean? Well, I think it's, it's really interesting. What What is the role of a manager? I, I want to talk about the transformation in context of what a leader's job is. And, you know, in the world of chemistry, we build steel and buildings, and we can count on them all fitting together because the atomic level, there's little energy that holds the atoms together. Well, in an organization, what is it that holds the people together? And leadership is a form of cohesion. It's a form purpose plus leadership. Leadership helps people get in the right spots doing the right things. And so if that happens, if you have true leadership, then the individual can be developed. They can be grown. And the leader sees it as their job to bring out the best in a person. And that's a whole mindset shift as to what leaders are all about. Yeah, I like this whole notion of seeing the opportunity to grow people and to take them to another level. Say a little bit more about this purpose and leadership connection, and especially when you marry that with values. And again, thinking about the fact that it's a Christian company as opposed to maybe a more secular environment, what's the value of that? An interesting observation from studying scripture that has really affected my mindset as a leader, and it, it's sort of the, why the title of the last book was called uh, Built to Beat Chaos. In Genesis chapter 1, God says we're building his image, but before he tells us that, he takes the trouble to say that the very first thing he created was not light, it was chaos itself. The very first line the Bible says, things were created in a void and a formless shape. And he took the trouble to tell us that. And then he told us that I, he brought order out of those things one step at a time. And so a leader cannot really bring order in, in among people unless the purpose for that group is clear. And so leadership has two key roles, making sure the purpose is known and understood. And then secondly, that the right people are working on the right things to pursue that purpose. Yeah, this is fabulous. And I know a lot of people are kind of chaos averse. And in your way of thinking about it, the chaos is actually this, the building blocks of the work we do every day. Talk more about how chaos is the building block and how people can leverage and use it effectively. The analogy I like to use with my wife and I, when we were young, uh, decided to build a home out in the woods and uh, they brought a truck out here with lots of lumber and shingles and bricks and blocks and you name it. There was all this stuff laying in piles and it looked chaotic. But along comes the architect with a blueprint. And the blueprint is a manifestation of the purpose. Here's what this house is supposed to look like. 
And so when you have the blueprint, you know which piece of wood to use next, which part of that supply of chaos to work on. So all those pieces look like chaos until you have a blueprint that then you realize what to do with them. And so when people are struggling with chaos, the place to start is to drop back and get clarity of purpose. So I love that. So basically, what looks like chaos, it's really the raw materials. And there is a way to put those raw materials together to build and create what you want. And you have to focus on purpose and other things like that in order to make it happen. So I guess the bottom line of what you're saying is don't fear the chaos you Mm -hmm. see. Sit down and figure out where do these raw materials go? How can they be helpful in building the company and structure that you want to build? That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think there's one area that sometimes people oversimplify or miss that they say, what's my purpose? Well, the truth is there are multiple purposes in life. When you're young, you're trying to figure out what gifts, what strengths, abilities you have, and then you get maybe find a mate and get married. And then now all of a sudden, you've got a purpose that has to be formed jointly with your partner. So there is a partner purpose. And within that is my the skills and the gifts that God has given me. Well, if I go to work with someone, that business has a strategy and some purposes within it. So this idea of aligning purpose, that's where peace comes from, is aligning purpose has to have this enough thought to consider an individual purpose, a family purpose, a business purpose, and do all those pieces fit together. I actually love that because I think there are some companies some people shouldn't sign up for because there's not an alignment of purpose between what they're really about, what they care about, and what they want to do in the world, and whatever that company is all about. And it's valuable just to even think about that alignment in terms of decisions and choices and how we can leverage the gifts that we bring for the benefit of that organization and also to have a sense of joy every day in what we're doing and in our work as well. I think you really said something profound there, and it's an area that people need to have their thinking challenge. I will frequently come across someone that's inside of an organization, they're angry, it isn't what they want or expect, and they become an obstructionist and vent their anger, and they become destructive force within it. And you step back and say, well, why are you working here? Why, Why did you take this job? And are they doing what they said they would do to begin with? And so in the end, we have to take ownership of our own life. And if the purposes of a business, it's ours or what it demands of me, don't line up with my family, then whose problem is that? That's mine to take ownership of and resolve it. Yeah, that's really, really a good point because we do have agency and we can make decisions and we can make choices rather than to tear down somebody else's house that they've built and that's working for them in that sense. And that's different from, I mean, you can give feedback and you can say this might work better if we Mm -hmm. do so and so and so and so. However, at the end of the day, if the company really is aligned along ABC and you're at XYZ, well, there may need to be some seat changes in a case. Well said, yeah, well said. (laughs) also talk about um, kingdom impact businesses. And you say there are maybe three requirements for those kingdom impact businesses. What are those requirements and what is a kingdom impact business? Great question. Again, because it's taken me decades to give you the answer I'm about to give you. When we first started at TLB way back, we thought the obvious things about biblical principles are tell the truth, be honest, uh, treat people right. And those are all right. And so that's that's sort of the foundational layer that Kingdom Impact Business should be an excellent business that provides stability, good jobs, well-managed. It's the basics of any business platform that's a solid citizen in a community. And people want to work for an organization like that, whether you're they're Christian or not. That's what they want. The second layer is what the Bible would call loving your neighbor as yourself. When you see somebody in need, you care about them, not because they work for you, just because they're a human being. So that idea of having a mindset of treating people as humans who are valuable in God's sight, that's layer two. But what's unique to Christianity is layer three. Layer three says that there are things that Jesus can do for an individual 
that I can never do for them. I cannot give them a new life. I cannot fix what's broken inside of people. I can help them and love on them, but Jesus can come in and actually, according to the Bible, give us a new kind of life, literally a new identity, a clean start, and then help us. And so I think a kingdom impact business has responsibility to do all three of those layers with the caveat that the third layer of offering somebody the gospel of Jesus Christ should only be done by their permission. You should not be coercing people, holding people back from promotion, doing those kinds of things, hiring only Christians. You should be open. You should be the fairest and most just business there is. But when you treat people right at those other two layers, people start to be interested in what you believe. And when those moments come, like Peter says, be ready always to give a reason for the way you think and act. Yeah, it's really um, interesting because you're creating an environment and creating conditions for people to thrive, and they may be curious and want to know more. And just like as Jesus says, whosoever will let him come, it's by invitation. So they let you know if they want to hear more or if they don't. And I I think that's important because I think a lot of non-Christians in the workplace are fearful that others will try to ram some things down their throat that they really don't want to hear or are ready or prepared to pursue or to hear as well. Yeah, I agree. And I'm part of that. Committed Christians when we started the business, but I don't think we thought about that third layer enough. I think being more intentional about all three, but do the first two to earn the right for the third. And if you never get the right for the third, it's okay. You have still been a light, you know, in your workplace, a light in the world, and you've made a difference in that person's life. And I think about what Paul said about, you know, planting and watering, who knows what may happen later in that person's life in another context or another setting. So sometimes we don't get to see, you know, what happens with the planting and the watering part that comes down the road. So you also mentioned, Gary, that there are some key core beliefs that make leaders effective. What are those core beliefs? Well, number one, and and by the way, this is all biblical. We don't use biblical language necessarily to explain it, but there's a cycle. Remember, I mentioned that a leader's job is to kind of hold things together, kind of like the chemistry of a building or a piece of steel, the chemistry of an organization. First, a leader has to truly care about people. Now, what happens if you really care about somebody? I mean, you genuinely love them like God said to do. It opens up the second step, which is you care about me, you begin to be open with me. And then when we can be open, our trust grows. And when our trust grows, then we can cooperate around purpose better. And that's called biblical oneness. We become more of one. That's the progression you go through as a leader. Oh, that is just so needed right now. (laughs) It really is. Let me put it this way. You were in technology, so you'll understand Mm -hmm. this thing I'm thinking about. It seems that as we become a little bit more tech savvy and maybe tech heavy, that some of that caring and connection has eroded and people are no longer being open with one another or engaging one another in profound ways. And therefore, there is less trust amongst people in the workplace. Speak about that and what you see going on. I don't think technology is the reason. I think it's the mindset of the person. And I'll give you an example. There's pros and cons. Uh, Absolutely. We have clients now where we used to go on site for two or three days and jam a lot of information in for a three-day presentation because we flew halfway across the country and it was expensive for us and them. Now, with today's technology, I can have a 10 half-an-hour conversation spread over four weeks, but with the screen sharing, like you and I are doing now, I can see body language and expression And I can actually get to know someone better than I would if I have spent eight hours with 10 people in a room. I don't buy the excuse that the technology is the reason for this. I think the reason is our own busyness and our own selfishness 
And um, I think the technology can actually make it easier for me to get to know somebody. I know that's counterculture, but I believe I know more people and know them more closely because I, like right now, I feel like I'm getting to know you. And would that have happened if I had to fly? I don't know that we would have even gotten together. That is so true. Uh, one of the things that I feel has been a benefit of the pandemic is I've always had a global business. And in the pandemic, I actually reached out to other parts of the globe where I had not been previously working. And I have clients in new places because of the ability to engage people in technology and in a technology space when maybe it's not convenient always to travel. So I think you're making an important point. It's not that the technology is the problem or the demon, if you will. It's a tool and how we approach it and how we use it is really what um, makes the difference and how the outcomes, I guess I'll say, that we end up getting. I agree. It brings to mind a story for me of a woman I got to know because I was doing some coaching with her. She's in healthcare. During COVID, she was completely burned out because in healthcare, they were asked to do 10 times as much with less resource. And I could just tell she was beat down. And I, after several meetings like this, where we're looking at each other, I can see in her body language. And I just stopped and said, take a breath. Can I pray for you? She just broke down in tears. And she began to share some other things. And that relationship was totally developed online. I would never have known her the way I did without an online connection. It just wouldn't have happened. That's a great example because you're also demonstrating that we can have deep connection with people, even if we're not face-to-face in the room with them. You touched her. She was impacted by your empathy and by the way that you reached out and cared for her. Mm -hmm. And this medium of technology was not a barrier, rather a facilitator of that deep connection that you had. So thanks for that story, because I think it illustrates very well the point that you're making. I want to dial back a second, back to your entrepreneurial journey and ask you this, because you spent, as you said, 50 years as a CEO and lots of years in your own business, and you had to learn some things the hard way. So what were some of the mistakes that you made as an entrepreneur and how does your learning from those shape how you help executives today? I don't think anything could have taught me more about my relationship with God than the hardships in the business world. I, I, maybe that may not be true for other people, but for me. And I remember I'm a very determined person. Once I set a direction, I work really hard. And we picked a project I was deeply involved with, and we spent way much, too much time. The project should have been shut down. It wasn't the right idea at the right time. And I almost bankrupted our company. And I remember praying one February, God, we need sales to go up so I can keep funding this project. The answer was all of a sudden sales went down 30%. And I had to lay off half the company. I had to shut down that project and I had to do what I should have done and didn't have the courage to do earlier. If I'd done it earlier, I wouldn't have to lay off all those people. What I learned from this, by the way, after that, we grew 600% the next six years by cutting our stealth in half and focusing on the right thing. What I learned from this is one, God knows what you need and he gives you what you need, not what you ask for. And number two is my tendency, this is my weakness, is to not, to hang on to things too long. You know, there are sometimes God's trying to tell us something and determination can turn into bullheadedness. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's that whole thing of strengths overplayed becoming weaknesses. <laughs> yes, well said, yes. You know, there's certainly that. So let me unpack that a little bit more because all of us are in these situations where there's an opportunity, let's say, to do something new and to be innovative. How do you know when you're being bullheaded and God has already given you a picture, you need to stop versus, you know, the turnaround is right around the corner and you need to hang in there for it to happen? Because it could be hard to tell which is which. You know, you ask questions that make me squirm, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> 
You put your finger right on a really difficult thing. You know, God says in the Bible that he gives us a new life. It's called Zoe life. And I think the most challenging thing for a, a CEO, a, a hard-charging CEO, is to get quiet and listen to God. When I'm off in my, I can sort of tell when I'm in my human part of me and not listening. And so my answer to your question is, one, have friends that can speak to you openly, unconditionally. You don't, you'll listen to them. You may not do exactly what they say, but you will listen. Number two is to be quiet with God. Learn to get quiet with God so he can speak with you. And then three, pray a lot because like in my case, God answered my prayer. He caused sales to go down 30% instead of up 30. You know, he he's capable of redirecting me. It's like pay attention to the answers to prayer, even if they seem unexpected. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yeah. And sometimes I need a big slap up beside the face and that's what I get. <laughs> Well, and it's important to really pay attention to that slap upside the face. What does it mean? He's not trying to destroy you. He's trying to save you from yourself most of the time, you know, in a case like that. So what are some other powerful leadership lessons you learned just from running your own business? Well, there's this proverb that says the integrity of the upright guides them. Mm. And um, I remember listening to... uh, gentleman that is runs Hobby Lobby, sitting and listening to him, he distilled something that I realized was true in our life, that sometimes I get really, really complicated about trying to make a decision. I see a hundred options and it feels chaotic, when instead I should be dropping back and figure out what's right. Simplify a complex decision of all the options and what might happen and all the outcomes instead say what's the right thing to do and leave the outcome to God. But I think that's what that proverb means when it says the integrity of the upright guides them. You quit trying to figure out the future. You don't know the future. And I want to know whether path A will be better than path B will be better than path C, when in reality, path A is rooted in dishonesty. Mm. Forget it. Cross it off the list. I don't care what it produces. If it's rooted in dishonesty, it's not going to be a good thing. Oh, absolutely. And any profit you think that you have from that will only be short-term at best and usually come with some huge cost. And what you're saying does remind me of Dr. Charles Stanley, who I loved and loved his Mm -hmm. programs and his shows. And he would say, basically, you know, do the right thing and you leave all the consequences to God. That Mm -hmm. was one of his main mantras of, you know, he said, we need to leave life as we go along on this journey. That's very helpful very profound lesson about living in integrity and being willing to accept what comes with that without knowing in advance. Amen. (laughs) By the way, it was David Green. I apologize. I couldn't remember his name. When we think about today's business environment, Gary, and, and you're working with many different organizations and you've had your own experiences, what are some of the main issues and challenges that are facing businesses and executives today? Something that's really current and going on in the now, maybe it wasn't even happening five years ago or last year. So tell us a little bit about what you see. I definitely have a candidate for that. The thing we hear the most right now is the difficulty of finding people that are qualified. And then secondly, the generation that is emerging, the the next generation. By the way, I, I am not faulting that generation. They are a product of what our generation has done. and But many, many people are coming into the workforce with no idea of the basics of um, responsibility and accountability. I'll give you an example. We, we work with a, a service organization has about 100 people and they're growing fast and they need people that frequently, in the last, in the last few weeks, they had six people hired to come in on a Monday. They worked hard to find these people not one of them showed up. This happens all the time where people will accept a job. They'll come in or not come in at all, work a day, quit, come in late the next day. It's it's an epidemic in terms of businesses are feeling like they have to parent the generation that's coming out. By the way, I think this ties into kingdom impact. Um, we as leaders, half people spend half their working hours at work 
and we have to be building whole persons. We have to view that as part of our work to build the whole person. You know, what you're talking about now, I'm also seeing in my client um, population as well. It's been really shocking for me to see the number of people who go through an extensive uh, recruitment and selection process say yes to the job and never show up mm-hmm. at all and never mm-hmm. call to say that they're not coming, which is to me amazing. I mean, I'm like, you know, in the baby boomer generation, this is like unheard of. You mm-hmm. would do something like this. Even if you changed your mind, you would at least call and say, I've changed my mind. I've made another decision. And most likely you wouldn't even decide until you were sure that you were willing to make the commitment to that company and you would follow through. So on this whole thing of the parenting, what are businesses to do really to deal with this, both in terms of the people who they may be bringing in? Is that what, what can they do on the selection and recruitment end and also after people already get there? So it's kind of like parenting on the back end and parenting on the front end. What would you say? Well, I think the first kind of paradigm shift that has to take place is that a leader's job is developmental. In other words, so many leaders are put into a position because of their success in doing their prior job. I'm a sales effective at sales, and then I become a sales manager. And so there's this context switch that they they grew up and, and learned to get praise for doing all these other things and don't really have a handle on what leadership is all about. And what we see all of the time is somebody's got 20 people reporting to them, they're trying to save costs, but their turnover is 30%. That's too many people to manage and develop relationships with them, know them well enough to coach them and make them productive and to grow them into mature self-leaders, individuals as self-leaders. And so the mistake is trying to cut corners. So what, what's the price of not developing those relationships? One, people don't grow up. And secondly, you have high turnover. You know, losing one person costs half their salary, six months salary. And so it's not economically smart. And so investing more in leaders that they see themselves no longer as a salesperson, but as a leader, as a manager, as somebody who's growing the capabilities of the people underneath them. You know, I think you're really hitting on something, Gary, that's really important because, and this has been an age-old problem, however, it's made worse now because people are coming less prepared to the workplace. People love often what they do at the operational level, and they forget that as they move into the senior ranks, their whole job is really to develop the next leaders Mm -hmm. who are coming up behind them. And their real role is not the technical operational part of the work. It's really that leadership and development piece and that preparation piece. And sometimes that's just not as exciting for some of the executives who get to the top. What strategies can we use to really engage those top leaders in understanding the value of this for the company's longevity long term? Well, again, you really kind of know how to put your finger on the just an absolutely critical issue. This starts in the mind. What you're describing starts in the mindset and it starts clear at the CEO's level. First of all, we have to work on the way we train and educate our leaders to make them realize you are in a new profession. You have a new set of skills and a new set of responsibilities. And something we learned the hard way is we came into organizations years ago trying to help them make some of these transitions and we positioned ourselves as coaches and we ended up doing way too much for a leader because they didn't have time so we would help them get done what they should have done. We've now switched to what we call a mentoring model And we say, look, we will equip you to equip the next layer. If you've got questions from us about how you mentor the next layer, we'll help you. We will not go mentor the next layer for you. 
Yeah, I mean, in essence, you would just be hired as kind of like the ones who hire maybe a CFO or someone who comes in to fill in short term to do the work as opposed to them learning how to do it themselves. You know, one of the things that I think is really important and that I'm practicing even in my own business and company is as I am developing that senior leader who's responsible for developing his team, I am practicing some of the things with them that they need to practice with their people. So that at least they see a picture of it, have a model of it, and then they can cascade it, you know, more thoroughly throughout, you know, their organization. Yeah, it has to be modeled from the top. I agree. Yeah, because otherwise, how would you know? How would you know what it looks like and what some of the options are? So we've been talking about what's going on now and what executives are facing. Look a little bit out into the future again. And what are some top issues that may not be here yet? They're on the way that let's say these executives are going to face in the future leading their companies. Well, I don't mean to be sort of stereotypical and jump on the bandwagon, but I do think things like artificial intelligence are resources to be tapped. They don't have a soul and they don't have a spirit, the artificial intelligence, but they can be what I call integration tools. We live in an age where the amount of information is increasing so rapidly and it's good information. Think of the information in your podcast. The people you bring on have decades of wisdom and your podcast is just one of how many? And so artificial intelligence can help comb through large amounts of data and bring us themes and patterns, but I don't believe it'll ever replace what happens when my heart intersects with information. And so I think organizations would be wise to have strategies to think about how can we use uh, the technology to free up time to do what the technology cannot do, develop relationships, love on people, help grow them and develop them. So again, it's a both and, it's not yeah. either or. We need the technology to facilitate what we're doing and we also need the people connection is what I'm hearing you say with that. Yes. Let's just take a brief little step back to ask, I'm going to ask this question. What about your personal backstory, how you were raised in your family of origin and your upbringing that prepares you for where you are today? Well, definite opinions about that and insights. My parents grew up in the um, Depression. They were children and teenagers during the Depression. And so that generation really never viewed it as their vision to just do what they enjoyed. They did what was necessary. They had a sense of responsibility. So if there was work that needed to be done, they did it to provide for their family. That enabled me to pursue more of my dreams. Do you see the distinction? There, I go to work not because it's the most fun thing to do. I go to work because it's my job as the breadwinner to provide for my family. And that's the generation my parents grew up in. They just needed to provide a meal. I learned responsibility and hard work. I grew up on a farm. And uh, I, it wasn't my dad liked me to work. He needed me to work. And so I had a sense of value, even as a 10-year-old, that I was important because I was doing stuff that mattered to the family. And so that shaped me, the, being able to work hard and know I had an identity of value. My grandchildren don't have some of that same opportunity. It's not their fault. But I grew up working next to my dad and what it was like to work a 12-hour day. I learned how to do that. You don't just snap your fingers and learn that. You grow into it over a period of years. My grandchildren don't. I mean, I have them over to work on the landscaping, and in 15 minutes, they're exhausted. You know, It's because they don't have that experience. So that really shaped me. Hard work, honesty, and um, uh, just a lot of time with my parents. Hmm. We think about the way things are today and that we don't have, well, my parents also grew up in that era of what you're talking about and transmitted to us that hard, you know, work ethic and a whole lot of other things. You do things because 
that's how you're going to survive in the world. And then like, mm-hmm. the new generation doesn't have that because we've been more prosperous, you mm-hmm. know, during the time of their lives. What else would you say that could be done to facilitate their developing a greater sense of responsibility with the experiences that they're having in their lives today? That's a, an amazingly good question. I, I look at my children, grandchildren, and I have found that uh, sports itself brings some sense of discipline, you know, that, that you have to be at practices, you, you know, you have to do certain things if you're going to play. That does teach them some lessons. I think to an extent a parent can, involving their kids um, in work early, I mean, giving them the responsibility of having a budget. I remember with our kids, we had such arguments about buying a brand name, you know, $200 pair of shoes or whatever with the right brand name. And finally, we just decided to give them their annual budget for clothes and you could spend it however you wanted. And believe me, not one dime of it was spent on $200 shoes. You know, that's great. They had to learn how to make their dollar stretch. <laughs> that's right. And you, by the way, when I didn't give them that responsibility, they learned nothing. They just asked me for more. But when I gave it, this is your money, use it how you want. No more $200 shoes. <laughs> well, thank you, because this is a wonderful example about how it's still possible to teach that level of responsibility today, even though we're not living in the depression years. And thankfully, and hopefully that's not coming back anytime soon. (laughs) So Gary, let me ask you about your latest book. And you've written several books, but this Built to Beat Chaos, tell us a little bit more. You've told us a lot about it, even in this interview so far. Tell us more about that book. Why did you write it? Who's going to benefit from it? What are they going to get out of it? It was written because I saw uh, in our own clients what I call victimhood. People today just feel overwhelmed by the amount of news, about the amount of chaos in the world. And I just hear the word chaos almost every day. I still do. And so that is really not the way the Bible is written. The Bible is written that God has given us what we need to have dominion. The phrase in Genesis 1 is have dominion. It's the same word is translated as overcome or rule. It just means to take ownership of what you've been given and be responsible for it. And so that was the underlying theme to help people know you were created for this. God gave you the ability to bring order out of chaos, but you got to decide what's important. That's what purpose is. You've got to decide what's important. Once you do that, you can start bringing order. So that that was the real reason. And secondly, I would say to help leaders, the subtitle of the book is uh, Built to Beat Chaos, um, Learning to uh, Lead Yourself and Others. And leadership is not synonymous with management. A manager is maybe a title, but a leader is a attitude. And every single person is a leader. So the the book is designed to convey that. Yeah, that is really fantastic. And a lot of times I think about management, there's more focused on things as opposed to people, things and processes more than people in a sense. And I love the idea that everyone has the opportunity to be a leader. You can lead in the sandbox at five years old. You're a couple of peers who are in there just by some of the things you make a choice to focus on and and to do. So it's something that's uh, reachable for all who are interested in reaching it and who can leverage their God-given gifts and skills uh, to do that. So I think that that's making leadership very accessible because it's not really hidden or resident in a high-level management title uh, per se. And so that's really fantastic. So who are the ideal clients for you, the the entrepreneurs that you work with? What are some of the demographics about their business or what they're trying to do that would say, these are the ones who should call and consult with you? We have changed our focus just in the last couple of years. It's because God has been redirecting me at this stage in my life that to pour into other leaders that have growing businesses that are Christians and want to figure out how to integrate kingdom building into the fabric of their business. You know, I went many years as trying to honor God running the business, and we did that. 
But I don't think we ever saw the business itself as a platform delivering those three levels we talked about earlier. And so that's who our target customer is, a growing organization with a a leader who feels called that God has laid on their heart that they should use their business as a platform for kingdom building. We can come alongside and help them both on managing the business, which is complicated. We, you know, when you grow a business, there's a lot to do to do it right. And so we have technology and best practices for that and leadership development that considers uh, the biblical way to do things. And so are you focused on early stage startups or a little bit later when they're? they're yeah, I'd say the people? sweet spot is about where they're about probably about 25 employees and on the way to whatever, hundreds or more, more. And the reason we start there is at that level, you're starting to get another layer of management and the complexity factor is growing geometrically because you get two layers, three layers. It just changes so fast and you need you need more help. That is so true. So how can people get a hold of you? How can they reach you? How can they get your books? Uh, just go to our website, leadfirst.ai. You can get contact with me at my phone number. My email is there. I, I'll talk to anybody anytime about kingdom building. <laughs> That's the easiest place to go. My book's on Amazon and all the other major book outlets. Okay, great. And of course, you know, I have to ask this question. Since your company is called Lead First, my book is called Lead Yourself First. <laughs> what does it mean that you've named your company Lead First? Tell us just a little bit about the background of that. Well, I, I just have this growing sense, this analogy. I believe God reveals through the creation. And he's shown us that there are rules of physics and chemistry that hold physical things together. But when it comes to people, people don't obey the laws of physics. I feel differently than I did yesterday. So how is it that you build an organization or humanity works together to do important things. And the essence of that is what leadership is. Leadership's job is to be the chemistry, the same thing that the laws of physics are to the physical world. A leader is the chemistry, that the glue that holds people together, helps them form purpose and get in the right spot at the right time. And that's my message is I'm growing in my understanding of the depth and importance of leadership. I think it's the most important calling being a leader. And I'm talking about self-leadership. What do you mean by self-leadership? Do you mean leading yourself? Or yes, you absolutely. Yeah. Leading yourself, like your book says. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Think about it. If we can't even get our own lives straight, how are we going to help somebody else, right? That's right. Yeah. It starts at home. Kind of like what the Bible says about certain principles start with the house of God and his people first, and then it cascades you know, elsewhere. So even at the individual level, it starts with us, and then as you even articulated about your business, you learned many lessons by what you went through first. And now you can share that and you can facilitate someone else's success. So if we're not learning anything ourselves, what are we sharing? <laughs> you know? Amen. Amen. If you're not learning, you're dying. That's kind of my view. <laughs> That's really, really true. I mean, I learned something new every day. It's what keeps life exciting and vibrant. I sense that you also are that type of person as well. Amen. Yeah. It's an adventure. You remember in uh, the movie, The Hobbit, did you ever see that? The movie, The Hobbit? Years ago, yes. Well, there's a scene in there where Gandalf comes and knocks on The Hobbit's door and he says, you want to go on an adventure? Ooh. And yeah. then he says, it might kill you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I feel God is with us. He calls us to these adventures. And yes, they might be dangerous, but he'll be with us. You know, it's funny because think about when he called the apostles and being, it was life or death. And all of them, except for John, you know, died horrific deaths in following him. Mm -hmm. So you're right. I mean, he, he calls us to be all in for mm -hmm. whatever it is that he's calling us to do. And he will be with us even as we may be crucified or whatever else might be going on. So yeah, mm -hmm. excellent point. So, Gary, as we're wrapping up today, what additional 
because you've given a lot of words of wisdom, by the way. What additional words of wisdom do you specifically want to leave for my community of corporate business executives? Now, these are people who are in larger global companies. They're way past the entrepreneurial stage. Mm-hmm. You know, lots and lots of employees, and yet some of these same principles apply. So what words of wisdom would you like to share with them? Well, I just had a conversation with a prospect that is a much larger company, and he's asking these same questions. And the root of his question was, how do we change the whole culture? And I know this sounds simple. The truth is easy to speak, but it's not easy to live. And the truth is the top leader has to get their heart right. They have to have their motives, their purpose right, and then invest in the people around them. That's how Jesus changed the world. He didn't have a thousand disciples. He had 12. These principles of truth can be monumental and change the world, but they have to be discipled or mentored one by one and build and genuinely reproduce what's in your heart in the heart of someone else. And you're not left alone to do this. God comes alongside you and empowers you to do it. So get resourced by God, be willing to sit at his feet for that infusion, if you will, and then do the same for others. It's the same Mm -hmm. as when Jesus called his 12 apostles and then he sent them out in essence, to love others as he had loved them. So that's really the bottom line of what we're all doing here on the earth. So Gary, thank you so much for being with me today and for sharing your wisdom, your leadership journey, and for leaving a lot of food for thought for us to think about in this situation. Well, thank you, Dr. Karen. You are a master communicator and really know how to ask good questions that dig deep. So thank you so much for what you do. You are so welcome. I'm delighted and so glad that you were here today. So we're going to close today's show on a particular Bible verse, which comes from 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, and it's verse 18, and it says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So it's just what Gary just said. Mm. Here we are sitting before God, before his mirror. He's seeing us. We're seeing ourselves. We're seeing his glory. And he is transforming us into his image day by day by his Spirit. Mm. So blessings to you as you live by his spirit, and lead your company with purpose and with God's word. Hi, this is Dr. Karen here today, and I want to share some important insights with you about Spirit Wings Kids Foundation, a 501c3 organization that's doing wonders across the globe and especially in Uganda. And today I have with me Donna Johnson, who's the founder of Spirit Wings Kids and a member of the board. And today she's going to tell us about the permaculture farm that they have started. Donna, tell us all about it. Thank you, Dr. Karen. For decades, we've been supporting the Orphanage and Family Network in Uganda. And in 2018, my son is a permaculturist and we had acres that we dedicated to his planting and it was just amazing and he also taught them how to do permaculture and it's flourishing in fact during the pandemic it saved lives uh 203 families were fed during the pandemic and so it's such a miracle that um, god just called us to plant that garden at the time that we did thank you so much donna thank you so much for your work in uganda and a couple of other things i want people to know as a permaculture farm is self-contained in many ways depending on how they're growing the crops you don't have to use pest control you don't need fertilizer it's a very sustainable way to provide food for the community and so that's a blessing so if you want to be a part of this wonderful work out there a hundred percent of all of your donation goes to the people in Uganda 
to help feed them and their families. So go to swkids.foundation and give today. Make a difference in the world. And thank you for doing so. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.